Foster from Once Upon a Crime. I am thrilled to have been invited to participate in the Generation Y podcast 10-year podversary live show. Join me in helping Justin and Aaron celebrate their 10 years producing one of the best and longest-running true crime podcasts ever. The live show will take place on September 8th at the Screenland Theater in Kansas City, Missouri, or you can also participate by live stream. Tickets are available at genypod.com. Along with Justin and Aaron, special guests include Nick and the Captain from True Crime Garage, Charlie from Crime Lines, Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice, Josh from True Crime BS, and me. It's going to be epic, and you won't want to miss it if you're as big a fan of Gen Y as I am. They were actually my biggest inspiration for and for supporters of Once Upon a Crime. Once again, get your tickets for the live show or live stream at genypod.com, and I hope to see you there. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Wild Women, we're stepping back in history to learn about some of the earliest female criminals on record. In this week's episode, I'll cover the case of Lavinia Fisher, who legend tells us was one of the first female serial killers. Along with her husband John, she was accused of luring unsuspecting travelers to her roadside inn where they were drugged, robbed, and murdered. Not until Kate Bender and her family, aka the Bloody Benders, were accused of similar crimes 50 years later, was another woman suspected of involvement in serial murder in the United States. But was Lavinia Fisher really a serial killer? Are the stories that describe her as a cold-blooded murderer historically accurate or simply tall tales? In researching this story, I dug a little deeper to try and separate fact from fiction as much as possible. What I found is that sometimes facts that have been obscured by time can take the story to a new and even more fascinating conclusion. Join me on a trip back to the early 1800s to discover the true story of Lavinia Fisher and the Six Mile Wayfarer House. If you've ever taken a ghost tour in Charleston, South Carolina, you probably heard the legend of Lavinia Fisher and the Six Mile Wayfarer House. The story goes like this. One frigid night in 1819, a fur trader named John Peoples stopped at a roadside inn outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston was an important destination for farmers and traders who moved their products in wagons over long distances to reach the city's wagon yards. From there, products including furs, hides, cotton, tobacco, and other goods were transported to their final destinations via the Carolina coast. Inns along the route to Charleston sprang up to accommodate these weary travelers. They were provided with rest and water for their horses, a hot meal, a bed for the night, and perhaps hot water to wash off the dust from the road. These inns, or what were simply called houses at that time, were named for the distance between their locations and the city of Charleston. Ten Mile House was located approximately 10 miles from the city. Eight Mile House was eight miles outside of Charleston, etc. 
The Six Mile House is the setting for our tale. It was run by a couple named John and Lavinia Fisher, and of course was located six miles outside of Charleston. Its specific location, for those of you familiar with the area, was close to Goose Creek Road, or the area now intersected by Highway 52 or Rivers Avenue and Dorchester Road. It was Six Mile House where John Peoples stopped to rest for the evening on that long ago winter evening in 1819. He was greeted by the innkeeper's wife, Lavinia. Lavinia Fisher was said to be beautiful with raven black hair and dark flashing eyes. She welcomed him warmly and after assuring him accommodations were available, showed him to his room. All the while, she kept up a stream of friendly conversation with the fur trader. She inquired as to his business, type of goods he was transporting, and invited him to have refreshments in the parlor before retiring to bed. Peoples, who'd found the lady of the house quite charming at first, began to feel a tinge of unease at her pointed inquiries about his business and other personal questions. Extremely weary from his travels, Peoples noted the lateness of the hour and declined when he was offered a cup of tea by Lavinia, who had insisted he join her and her husband, John, for a beverage before turning in for the night. Peoples, however, was very aware of the ongoing danger of being robbed by highwaymen, thieves who targeted stagecoaches, carriages, farmers' wagons, and the like. He wondered, was the innkeeper in cahoots with a band of thieves and setting him up to be robbed? He decided to remain vigilant. The wary traveler hid in the corner of the room and late into the night he witnessed something extraordinary. The bed he would have been sleeping in if his intuition hadn't been triggered fell through the floor by way of a hidden trap door. The entire bed plunged into the cellar. Peering down into the gaping hole to the cellar, he saw the innkeeper and his wife waiting below, armed with axes. He realized that he had just escaped certain death and fleeing in terror, mounted his horse as fast as he could go. He reported his terrifying ordeal to the town constable, who rode out with several of his men to the Six Mile House to investigate. There, they made a bone-chilling discovery. Trap doors were built into the floor of the inn's guest rooms. In the cellar, a pit was discovered filled with human remains. How many people had met their demise in this house of evil, they could not determine, but they were aware that several travelers had gone missing in the area for some time. Most chalked these disappearances up to victims of highway robbery. But now they knew that these men had never made it back on the road after stopping at the Fisher's Inn. The victims had been lured in by Lavinia's charm and had agreed to take her up on an offer of a cup of tea or a drink. She spiked these drinks with a strong sedative that would keep them groggy until the couple could carry out their murderous plan. Their guests' horses, carriages, and goods would then be confiscated and their bodies hacked up before being thrown into the pit in the cellar. John and Lavinia Fisher were jailed, tried, and quickly convicted. Their sentence was death by hanging. John, desperate to escape the hangman's noose, busted out of jail, leaving his wife behind. His cowardly act did not succeed, and he was soon caught and returned to jail. On the day the couple was to hang, John Fisher cried, begged, and pleaded for his life while Lavinia, ever defiant, refused to walk and had to be carried to the gallows. She insisted on wearing her wedding dress to her hanging, and this added to the macabre atmosphere. John pleaded with his wife to ask God for forgiveness before her death, but she refused. She also refused the prayers of the clergyman, who was on hand to give the condemned couple their final benediction. 
Lavinia, her dark eyes flashing with hate and fury, made a final shocking statement to those gathered to see her sentence carried out. Please, she said, opening her arms wide, I will have none of it. Save your words for those who want them. But if you have a message you want sent to hell, give it to me and I'll carry it. With that, the trapdoor was pulled and Lavinia Fisher fell through, much as her victims had in their final moments in her horror hotel. The crowd gasped as they heard her neck snap. No more curses or hateful words would ever be uttered from Lavinia Fisher's lips again. But that wasn't the last people would hear of Lavinia, if you believe the stories. Even 100 years after her death, some say the beautiful and evil Lavinia still haunts Charleston. Her apparition, forever clad in her wedding gown, has been seen by countless frightened citizens and visitors in the area of the old jail on Magazine Street where she was imprisoned before her execution. She is also said to walk among the gravestones at the Unitarian Church graveyard where she was buried. But as you may have guessed, stories like these that are so colorful, so memorable, and end with a ghost story are rarely 100% true. But Lavinia and John Fisher were real people, who ran an inn called Six Mile House outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And they were charged with the crime, found guilty, and hanged in 1820. Some of the details have been embellished over the years, as is often the case with such colorful stories. And this tale includes many elements that caused it to be handed down as historical lore for decades. We know from playing the game of telephone as children that these hand-me-down tales often become distorted and embellished over time. So, what were the elements of this tale that has kept it firmly planted in the memory of Charlestonians since the 1800s? Well, first, you have multiple murders committed in a planned and methodical way. These murders even included a feat of engineering, a hidden trap door the size of a bed frame, for goodness sake. And you can't discount that the story also featured a common fear for citizens at that time. Much like children of yore were warned away from wandering too far into the woods, with tales of big bad wolves and child-eating witches, travelers became wary of the dangers of life on the road. They were constantly vulnerable to highway robbers, and it became necessary to remain vigilant at all times. To learn that they may still be in danger once they reached the inns they considered safe harbors, well, that just added another level of fear and anxiety for travelers. Because of these reasons, the story of the murderous innkeepers quickly took on a life of its own, and the tale grew into the legend it is today. But what may be most intriguing about this story, and as the legend suggests, became the most popular part of this tale, a beautiful and charming woman turns out to be a cold-blooded killer. Lavinia Fisher is still sometimes listed as America's first female serial killer, although that claim is dubious at best. But as I said, there are truths woven into the story. I'll provide you with all the details of the true story, but I also dug a little deeper, and I'll share with you some other details not commonly known. Details that I found to be even more interesting, and that may provide real clues to the truth behind the arrest, trial, and execution of the Fishers. In February 1819, citizens of Charleston had had enough of the bands of highway robbers that had plagued the wagon trade their town had been built upon. 
The economy was in the doldrums, and Charleston faced competition for the wagon trade from smaller port cities and towns, ones where merchants weren't getting continually robbed for their goods and cash. Charleston's citizens decided to take matters into their own hands. Learning that a band of robbers had set up a base of operations just outside the city, a group of vigilantes, determined to run them off, made their way to the roadside inns. They'd learned that these outlaws sometimes ran crooked card games in these houses, cheating travelers out of their money or straight up stealing their winnings. The mob first arrived at Five Mile House and without any description of these alleged bandits, simply demanded that the small group of men they found there vacate the premises forthwith. They also demanded they leave all their possessions behind if they wished to escape with their lives. The men, naturally, protested and resisted the mob. In response, the mob set fire to the building. Wow, way to defend the innkeeper's property, right? The five-mile house burned to the ground. But hey, the bandits? Travelers? Innocent bystanders? Well, they were sent packing. Thus successful in their efforts, I guess, the mob continued down the road to the six-mile house. While the occupants there, including proprietors John and Lavinia Fisher, had already received word of the mob's attack at the five-mile house. They also had most likely smelled smoke drifting down from the burned-out remains of their neighbor's inn and fled forthwith. I like that word. The mob, finding the inn empty of occupants, decided to post a young man named David Ross to watch over the property while they continued on their way. After the mob was far enough down the road, the people that had fled the six-mile house returned. Finding David Ross there alone, they attacked him, and he eventually escaped into the woods. The next day, Ross would give an affidavit regarding the events that occurred at the Six Mile House. He said that a man named William Hayward, accompanied by another unnamed man, quote, cursed him, collared him violently, and pushed him out of doors. Okay, now this part made me chuckle. He further stated that Hayward, quote, put his hand to his bosom and stated, you damned infernal rascal. If you lay your hand on anything, I will blow your brains out, end quote. Ross's report continues, and the Fisher's actions are recorded in the official record of this incident. Ross stated that John Fisher, along with his wife Lavinia, accompanied by two other men, approached him angrily. That's when, quote, Lavinia Fisher laid violent hands upon him, choked and boxed his head through a pane of window glass, end quote. At this time, Ross also stated he was desperately trying to flee, but Hayward and Fisher, it's not clear if he meant Mr. or Mrs. Fisher, beat him unmercifully with loaded whips. The couple was aided by two other men and at least one woman who was not Lavinia Fisher. Ross states that he was able to break away and run into the woods. He was fired upon just as he reached the tree line and could hear the men cursing him and threatening his life if he ever returned. At about this same time, a trader named John Peoples, whose name we heard in the tall tale version of this story, was headed home from Charleston and stopped at the Six Mile House to water his horses. As he was doing so, he was attacked and robbed after getting into an argument with a man who had emerged from the inn. The man demanded his bucket to water his horse, but Peoples refused as he was in the process of using it himself. As they began to argue, according to Peoples' affidavit, quote, Nine or ten persons, among them a tall, stout woman, came out of the house, armed with clubs, guns, and pistols, end quote. People said he was assaulted by this group, and the affidavit states that the woman appeared to be the most active in beating him, cutting him over the head and eyes with a stick. After the group doled out this ass-kicking, 
they returned to the inn. Peoples dragged himself back into his wagon and continued down the road, but he was overtaken just a short distance away by two of the same men that had beaten him. Brandishing a pistol, they demanded his money and robbed him of about 35 or $40. He later identified some of his attackers as William Hayward, Joseph Roberts, John Andrews, and John and Lavinia Fisher. The sheriff was alerted regarding these two assaults and one robbery at the Six Mile House. He rode out with his large party of men to round up the hooligans. Once they reached the inn, the group was rounded up, and they surrendered without incident. Taken into custody were John and Lavinia Fisher, as well as two men named James McElroy and Seth Young, and another woman named Jane Howard. All were placed into a paddy wagon and hauled off to the old city jail on Magazine Street. Those who were incarcerated in this facility found the conditions not only harsh, but torturous. Stone walls and floors and rough barred windows did little to keep out the frigid cold in winter or the suffocating humidity in the summer months. The jail was almost always overcrowded, and prisoners, constantly on edge from the violence they were subjected to by their cellmates and guards, found the conditions nearly intolerable. With constant hunger, deprivation of air and sunshine, and the never-ending battle to keep rats and other vermin off of them, inmates were often driven to violence or madness. Neither was a remedy for the torturous prison conditions. The insane were housed right alongside the general population, as were violent offenders. The only difference was that these unfortunates received the added punishment of being shackled to an iron ring in the center of the floor, making them even more vulnerable. The only way out of the hell that was the old city jail was by praying to be exonerated or death. And inmate death was an ever-present possibility, either as a result of sickness at the hands of violent guards or inmates or at the end of a hangman's noose. Many could not wait for the sweet mercy of death and took their own lives. With the Fishers and the others now locked away in the old city jail, a search of Six Mile House was conducted. Contrary to legend, no trap doors or burial pits were found. The only thing of note that was found was the hide of a cow that was determined to have been recently stolen and discovered hidden in an outhouse. However, a week later, a freshly dug grave was found in the woods near the Six Mile House. Two bodies, one merely a skeleton, were found. The body of a man who appeared to have been hastily buried in a rough wooden box was discovered, as well as the body of a young black female. The man had been shot. He was never identified and no one was charged with his homicide. It was further determined that the young woman had been dead for some time, as only her skeleton remained. She'd been buried without the benefit of a coffin and her grave was unmarked. It is assumed that this was the body of a young slave girl. She was also not considered a victim of the Fishers. No other bodies were ever found either in or around the Six Mile House. After the home and grounds were thoroughly searched, the inn was burned to the ground, just as the Five Mile House had been. More arrests were made as the rest of the gang associated with the Six Mile House were rounded up. William Hayward, James Sterrett, John Smith, and Joseph Roberts were also charged and jailed. Many of the men charged as part of the gang had prior criminal records for assault, robbery, larceny, and various other crimes. John Fisher had previously been charged with theft and given a sentence of 30 lashes, but was pardoned by the governor under the condition that he leave the state of South Carolina, a condition which he obviously did not obey. William Hayward, one of the ringleaders of the attack, according to the victim, 
was not only a convicted criminal, having been indicted on robbery and assault charges previously, but was also the proprietor of the Five Mile House. Curiouser and curiouser. But more on that in a bit. A little over a month after their arrest, the Fishers and two others had their day in court. Only the Fishers, Hayward and Joseph Roberts, remained in jail. The others had already been released. Hayward was freed on bond soon after his hearing. John Roberts also posted bond and was released, but was rearrested soon after for threatening a butcher. No, seriously. The trial was set for May 10, 1819. John and Lavinia Fisher faced the judge in the spring of 1819 charged with assault with intent to murder and common assault on David Ross. They were the only ones to stand trial on that day, since John Roberts had already pleaded guilty to assault in the case of the butcher and received a one-year prison sentence, which he was already serving. William Hayward had jumped bail and fled the jurisdiction. He would be tried in absentia. On May 27th, John and Lavinia were tried together. The prosecutor described to the jury how the couple had, quote, wielded, pointed, and fired a loaded weapon at David Ross with the intent to kill. Ross was also mistreated, beaten, wounded, and placed in great fear for his life, the prosecutor dramatically stated before a packed courtroom gallery. Not surprisingly, the Fishers and Hayward in his absence were found guilty. Their sentencing was delayed pending an appeal. They were to remain in the old city jail until this motion could be heard. Meanwhile, William Hayward was finally brought to justice in July when he was recognized at a Columbia, South Carolina hotel and returned to Charleston. John and Lavinia were housed together in one cell separated from the other inmates. The only single cell available was one used as an isolation cell, so the conditions the Fishers were living under while awaiting sentencing were even harsher if possible. Lavinia petitioned the sheriff to move them to another part of the prison, a wing often used for those who are charged with unpaid debts. The cell would be larger and have more ventilation. The move was approved. Once there, they reconnected with their former co-defendant, Joseph Rogers, who was serving out his sentence for assaulting the butcher. The three of them had more freedom of movement, and they decided to take a chance on escape. Over time, they managed to carve out a hole underneath a second-floor window, by which they could pass through to the outside. They tied blankets together as a ladder, and on the night of September 13, 1819, they made a break for freedom. Roberts climbed down first, followed by John. As Fisher was descending, the makeshift rope broke, and he fell 20 feet to the ground. He was not seriously injured, but Lavinia was now trapped alone with no way to escape. Here is where we debunk the story that John Fisher was a coward who escaped without his wife, leaving her behind to face judgment alone. The original plan was for the escaped trio to get to the Charleston Harbor and board a ship to Cuba. But both Fisher and Roberts, unwilling to leave Lavinia behind, stayed in Charleston to work on a plan to rescue her. It appears that their goal was to get together enough money to bribe the jailer. Within days, they were recognized near the docks in Charleston, reported to police, and were discovered hiding underneath an overturned boat. In their possession were found gold pieces and watches most likely what they were able to amass as part of the bribery scheme. They were returned to jail to await sentencing. But their fate was all but sealed once the escape plan failed. Escapees were an embarrassment for the authorities, and the jailbreak would weigh heavily against them at their sentencing hearing. 
January of 1820, John and Lavinia Fisher had been behind bars, convicted of the assault on David Ross for almost a year. Their appeal to the Constitutional Court, the equivalent of our modern-day appeals court, had been rejected, as was their motion for a new trial at their sentencing hearing. They would now learn their fate. But something curious happened at that sentencing hearing. The charge they had been convicted of was assault with intent to commit murder and common assault against David Ross. But when they went before the judge, the crime that they were sentenced for was highway robbery upon John Peoples. They had not been charged with highway robbery, much less convicted of it. Even so, this was the crime for which they were now being sentenced and the one for which the judge ruled that the Fishers would hang. Their execution date was set for February 4th, less than three weeks away. And here's another clue that John and Lavinia Fisher were not serial killers that preyed upon unsuspecting travelers, nor had bodies piling up in a pit beneath their house. Once the citizens of Charleston learned that the couple was sentenced to hang, they began protesting the sentence and appealed to the authorities for mercy. Would they have done so if they believed that the Fishers were guilty of such heinous and horrible crimes? Many respected members of Charleston society, as well as clergymen, pleaded with the governor to see reason. The women of Charleston were appalled that Lavinia would also be hanged. A woman receiving a death sentence just wasn't done, and it seemed, well, barbaric, they thought. They also pointed out that it was not a Christian or charitable thing to subject a female to the harshest punishment available. Some even gave speeches asking what it meant for society to condone the execution of a woman. Was this the end of civilized, polite society? At that time, death sentences were carried out swiftly. Unlike today, where it can take decades before a condemned person faces the death chamber, if at all, executions were carried out in just days or weeks in the early 1800s. The uproar was enough to spur the governor to grant a short delay, giving the condemned couple time to, quote, prepare to meet their God. The execution date was rescheduled for Friday, February 18th. It also gave the governor enough time to get out of town to avoid the whole ordeal before the fated day. The stories about Lavinia's behavior in contrast to her husband's as she awaited her sentence appears to be backed up by historical records. The Reverend Dr. Richard Furman, the pastor of the Charleston Baptist Church, volunteered to minister to the couple in their final days. While John wholeheartedly agreed to spend time in prayer with the Reverend, Lavinia insisted that a pardon was forthcoming from the governor and refused to believe otherwise. Even at the times when her husband could persuade her to pray, she jumped up at every small noise, convinced it was the jailer coming to inform her of a reprieve. When she once again was disappointed, Lavinia began shrieking and cursing her captors. She had convinced herself that the governor would never let a woman hang. She also insisted until the end that she was innocent. On the morning of the execution, John and Lavinia placed loose white garments over their clothing. Lavinia did not go to the gallows wearing her wedding dress. She was terrified of hanging and was barely able to function. John, rather than the pleading and simpering coward he has been made out to be by legend, appeared heartbroken that he could not save his wife from the hangman. An eyewitness wrote an account of that day in great detail. John Blake White later reported that he never forgot what he witnessed on the day of the hanging. It would cause him to have strong opinions regarding capital punishment from that day forward. White was an attorney at the city jail conducting business that day and saw the events unfold firsthand from beginning to end. He recorded his observations from the moment the fishers were taken from their cells until their final moments. 
The hangman was standing right outside their cell when the fishers emerged to be transported to the gallows. The executioner, whom White described as a, quote, haggard, pale, emaciated creature, never left her side for an instant. As soon as Lavinia laid her eyes upon the hangman, she shrieked in terror, a sound which, according to the witness, chilled every heart with horror. The couple grasped each other tightly. They were escorted to a wagon and boarded it for the short ride to the gallows. A huge crowd was already gathered there in anticipation of witnessing a rare event, the execution of a woman. As the coach reached the site where the gallows stood and they emerged, John Fisher got his first look at the gallows. The blood drained from his face and his body shook in terror. He grasped his wife to him once more. As he walked to the steps of the scaffold and began to climb them, John looked back at Lavinia, but she refused to move, frozen in place. She had to be dragged up to the scaffold, still insisting that she would not be hanged, that the governor would surely give her a last-minute pardon. Women in the crowd began to weep, and men, feeling ashamed for their excitement just a few minutes earlier to witness this spectacle, looked down at the ground, shuffling their feet in awkward silence. Lavinia wailed, pleading with the crowd to save her. But in anticipation that her supporters may try to disrupt the proceedings, the governor had planned in advance. The cavalry was posted near the crowd and guarded the platform to keep order. Lavinia, her white garment blowing about her, stretched her arms wide and called out for the people to look upon her with pity. She cried out, professing her innocence. But when it was clear to her that she would not be saved, she became enraged and began to curse and blaspheme God, the governor, and anyone who would ever consider condemning a woman to hang. John, resigned and tearful, turned to his wife and begged her to calm herself and use her final moments to make her peace with God. Lavinia continued to shriek, and her words became more profane, shocking the crowd. The reverend, who stood on the gallows to bestow a final blessing on the condemned couple, now attempted to calm Lavinia by beginning a prayer of repentance, asking her to join in and prepare herself to meet her maker. Lavinia, her voice now strong, said the following words which rang out clearly over the crowd, words that would never be forgotten. Cease, she said in response to the prayers offered to her. I will have none of it. Save your words for others that want them. But if you have a message you want to be sent to hell, give it to me and I will carry it. That's pretty badass. However, as the noose was placed around her neck, her resolve crumbled. She began crying out to God for mercy, although she was still asking that he spare her life. Finally, in her final moments, she prayed for forgiveness for any offense she'd ever committed against God. John Fisher addressed the crowd to beg forgiveness also, but also to protest his innocence. He asked forgiveness from anyone he had ever offended. In addition, Fisher said he forgave those who had accused him and his wife falsely. At just after 2 p.m., caps were placed over John and Lavinia's faces, and they embraced each other one last time, before the signal was given and the trapdoor fell. Lavinia died instantly as her neck snapped at the end of the rope. John was not as lucky. It took several minutes before he suffocated and his heart stopped. John Fisher was 29 and Lavinia 28 years old at the time of their deaths. William Hayward would also hang on August 11, 1820.
I learned many of the facts in this story from an excellently researched and detailed book written by Bruce Orr, titled Six Miles to Charleston, The True Story of John and Lavinia Fisher. In it, he lays out a theory that the Fishers may have been innocent of the crime for which they were hanged, and possibly framed as part of a land swindle. If you're interested in more details about that part of the story, I encourage you to read the book. But since the topic for this series is wild women, I was most interested in finding out as much as possible about Lavinia Fisher. I also gleaned more information about Lavinia's identity from Bruce Orr's book. I found these details very intriguing as they may provide a new perspective on this old legend. All we really know about Lavinia is that she was born in 1792, and only because we know the age she was at the time she was hanged. We don't know where she was born, who her parents were, or even what her last name was at the time of her birth. Bruce Orr did an extensive search of census records, marriage records, and other documents to learn more about her and to attempt to discover who the real Lavinia Fisher was. We know that her hanging was considered a great scandal at that time, and we know that she was not a serial killer with a pit full of bodies in the cellar. So what about her made the authorities even consider hanging her alongside her husband? The author came across information that caused him to speculate, what if Lavinia had not been a white woman? He discovered that John Fisher's uncle was Colonel George Fisher from North Carolina. In 1810, Colonel Fisher's attorneys sold two slave girls belonging to Colonel Fisher to Dr. Joseph Glover, a physician in South Carolina. The names of these two girls, Sally and Lavinia. In 1810, at the time of this sale, and nine years before the incidents at Six Mile House, Lavinia would have been 18 years old. Bruce Orr speculates, what if John Fisher's uncle, who owned a young slave girl named Lavinia, sold her to get her away from his nephew, John, who had fallen in love with her. A slave owned by John Fisher's uncle, who also had the unusual name of Lavinia? Just a coincidence? Seems unlikely to me, too. Lavinia was sold to the doctor and sent to live in South Carolina. John Fisher later turns up in South Carolina, where he becomes proprietor of the Six Mile House just a few years later. He and Lavinia are said to be husband and wife, yet there are no records of their marriage in either North or South Carolina. Could this be because she was a black woman, a former slave, whom it would have been illegal for him to marry? If so, she may have been his common-law wife. If this theory is true, I can't help but think it may be a very tragic love story. Two forbidden lovers never give up on being together and somehow find a way to conquer every obstacle that threatens to keep them apart. We can also surmise, if true, that Lavinia Fisher was of mixed race and fair-skinned. The citizens of Charleston were aghast that a white woman would be put to death. In several articles and pamphlets written during that time, she is always described as such. John Fisher's complete devotion to his wife, even at the expense of his own life, now makes much more sense in this context. His heartbreak at their joint conviction and death sentence may have been compounded by his guilt, perhaps believing that if she'd never met him, if they'd never fallen in love, her life would not have ended in such a tragic way. Did the authorities in Charleston know that Lavinia was a black woman and a former slave? If so, they never revealed this to the public or anyone else. Did someone, perhaps Colonel Fisher or another family member, conspire with them to end what they may have considered a shame on the family in return for land or money? Bruce Orr goes into great detail about the possible land swindle that may have set the chain of events in place that led to the execution of the Fishers. 
One detail that stands out and that I'll share with you here, just to wrap this up, is that you must remember that of the group of nine or ten original defendants, only three were hung. The Fishers, who ran the Six Mile House, and William Hayward, the proprietor of the Five Mile House. Coincidence or conspiracy? I'll let you decide. It's quite a story, and we may never know the complete truth of it, but I think it would make a great movie or romance novel, albeit with a very sad ending. I'd even go so far as to say it makes the false story of Lavinia as a killer whose ghost haunts Charleston pale in comparison. If she does haunt Charleston, perhaps it's because she's trying to reunite with her lost love. Oh, and by the way, I doubt that her ghost haunts the Unitarian Church graveyard. She was never buried there. She and John were buried in a potter's field in Charleston. Their true burial location is now the site of the Medical University of South Carolina. So maybe she's haunting that facility? As for the old city jail, I have to believe that Lavinia's spirit would want to get as far away from that hellhole as possible. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I love these old stories and I especially love finding out the truth about them. Since many times the truth is stranger than fiction. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. You can find us on social media. Get all the links at our website, truecrimepodcast.com. You can get true crime trivia, event info, giveaway offers, and more by text. You can opt in by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. Text messaging is provided by TechSanity.com. Until next time, be good to one another.